0: Good evening and welcome to this event, Reinvigorating UK Democracy, How to Bridge the Gap Between Citizens and State. I'm Jess Sargent, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government. Uh, This event is part of the IFG Bennett Institute Review of the UK Constitution. And at the centre of the UK Constitution are its representative institutions. But against a backdrop of decreasing trust in politicians and disenchantment with the political system, demands for greater citizen input in decision making have been growing. People want to say in the decisions that affect them and their lives. Recent polling by the UCL's Constitution Unit found that 77% of people feel like they have too little influence over how the UK is governed. And polling from the IPPR, Unlock Democracy in the Electoral Reform Society, found that just 6% of people believe that voters are the most powerful influence over government decision-making. So how do we bridge the gap between citizens and the state and bring policy closer to the people? Joining me now to answer these very questions, I have an excellent panel. I have Sarah Castell, CEO of Involve, the UK's leading public participation charity. Uh, joining us online, uh, we have Professor Jane Souter, Professor in the School of Communications in Dublin City University, and who's been closely involved in the Irish Citizens' Assembly and Constitutional Conventions. We have Olly Whittington, Senior Researcher um, leading Democratic Innovation at the Centre for Collective Intelligence Design at Nesta, and Miriam Levin, uh, Programme Director at Engage Britain and former civil servant with extensive experience leading community action and engagement inside government. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this evening. Um, I'm going to ask three of my panellists to pitch their ideas for reinvigorating UK democracy. Uh, So from Citizens Assembly, co-design of policy and digital democracy and then Miriam will be responding talking about the challenges and opportunities of implementing each of the panellists ideas. Then in the spirit of democracy it will be over to you. For those watching online please do send in your questions via Slido um, and For audience here in the room, once we get to that section, um, if you can just put up your hands, we have a mic and someone will come and pass that to you. Um, We'll be live tweeting along at IFG events uh, using the hashtag IFGBennettInstitute. Um, So please follow along and do tweet. But without further ado, um, I'm going to pass over to Jane, who's going to tell us her idea for reinvigorating UK democracy.
1: Okay thanks very much. If, I hope my camera isn't, if my camera is right, I'm in kind of a sea of brightness there. so I hope you can, I hope you can see me. I have COVID, so I'm working from home rather than the, the office. Um, but delighted to be with you uh, all here here today. And I wanted to share with you um, some of the Irish experiences with uh, with deliberative democracy and citizen engagement and so on. And I suppose in Ireland, when we talk about uh, deliberative democracy, by and large, we're actually talking about uh, national level uh, citizens' assemblies. Um, and I think probably the most important concept really to think about with uh, citizens' assemblies and Certainly, the way we conceived of them, and the way one of the things that I think is actually central to their success. Obviously, you only have five minutes, so you know I'm not going to give you a, a whole history of them. But is the is the link with uh, with representative democracy? So it's about actually strengthening representative democracy. Um, it's being a bolster to representative government. So in that way, it's really crucial to have the links. With uh, representative institutions, policymakers, and politicians, with the executive, uh, with the legislative, and it's really important that those other arms actually see citizens as a legitimate means of uh, of policymaking, and therefore they're more likely to engage with the with the outputs uh, properly. So I think one of the things to think about it is sometimes when you start thinking about citizens' assemblies, one of the first objections is, well, if you start giving this power to citizens, then surely somebody else is losing some power. So policymakers, civil servants or politicians might um, be nervous of that uh, possibility. But I think we can be quite clear that it that it's not a zero sum game. And um, if you think about it, uh, politicians and policymakers are lobbied all the time by uh, by interest groups, by industry, by unions, by civil society, even. Um, but they're never really lobbied uh, by citizens, except for small kind of transactional things in a in a particular constituency. Um, so politicians rarely actually know what it is that citizens want. The closest they get is uh, is opinion polls or vox pops in the in the media and that's like going into the pub sometimes and you know tapping somebody on the shoulder and asking them what they think um so the difference with deliberative democracy is that we're actually asking randomly selected citizens what they think but it's not only um that they're randomly selected and therefore they're different to the self selected people who turn up as MPs, constituency clinics, or write letters to newspapers, or chair tennis clubs, or whatever else it is that they do, um, what it is, is they actually have to inform themselves. They happen to, to listen to lots of evidence from both sides of a debate. And so really, when you listen to their output, it can be considered a proxy for what an informed view of the public is once they've heard the the evidence. So that's very different to just asking somebody what they think in an opinion poll, some sort of top of the head opinion. And I think it's notable in the first Irish uh, citizen assembly in 2012, um, one third of the members were actually politicians, so they were MPs. Um, They debated about a range of issues, but the one that was uh, most well known was actually marriage equality. But I think it's really interesting in the interviews we did with them afterwards, the one thing that they all said is that they were really surprised by how seriously the citizens took it. You know, they they had been thinking beforehand that random citizens would just come up with random thoughts, that they wouldn't be capable of making trade-offs, that they wouldn't take it seriously, that they'd want everything, that they wouldn't be able to see that there were compromises needed and, and so on. And to a, to a man and a woman, they said that they really enjoyed it because usually when they engaged with citizens, it was only because the citizen was looking for something. So they needed more car parking or they needed the football pitch done up or whatever it was. Um, So this was eye-opening for them. Afterwards now, our assemblies haven't had politicians in them except for actually one that we're doing at the moment on um, Dublin and and local government. Um, But I think the thing... The way to think about it is in uh, the 20th century, it was probably fine that we just asked citizens what they thought every four or five years, gave them an opportunity to, to kick the rascals out, uh, if you like. But in a much more fast moving information age, in an age when people have much higher levels of education, much higher levels of engagement, much more ability to uh, see what's going on through the hybrid media system and so on that that's no longer um, longer sufficient. Um, And allowing citizens in is, again, for policymakers and for politicians because it allows them to build trust and closeness. It allows them to see what it is that citizens want, which means that they actually have a view that's different from those of the lobbyists who they're much more used to to listening to. Um, And the other thing from the point of view um, of politicians and policymakers, I just thought I'd focus on that because of such a, a short period of time, is that it really helps them uh, where there's kind of inter and intra-party divisions. So, you know, the most well-known ones in Ireland were marriage equality, abortion, climate change. And all of those were issues where the the largest party had serious divisions. You know, they had a a right-wing group who had a certain view and a more progressive uh, group who had a different view, and I think, you know, there's the same kind of divisions and factions within um, all of the main British parties as well. Um, and so, actually, allowing citizens a voice allows the politicians the opportunity to bridge those sort of gaps that they have between them. And then, if those gaps, if you happen to have a coalition, if there's those kind of differences between coalition partners. Um, bringing in the citizens uh, voices can often um, allow a more conducive atmosphere to to bridging those kind of gaps between uh, coalition um, partners um, as well. So like we had the ones on marriage equality and abortion, which were very well and a large number of others, which were very well known and led to referendums where we had to have constitutional change because we have a, a written constitution. Um, But others, for example, on climate change is Ireland was very much a climate change laggard. And afterwards, partly as a result, um, there was a a fairly ambitious uh, climate bill. And, um, you know, we followed the Westminster Parliament in in declaring um, a climate emergency. And I think it's um, interesting to think about kind of what are some of the reasons for that success? And having talked to colleagues in in Scotland and in in England, um, as well as in Dublin, I think one of the things was that, for example, there was a Westminster Citizen Assembly that was set up by um, a group of select committees, and it was an absolutely fantastic assembly, really well organized, really well run, fantastic evidence and so on. But as far as I know, the most senior uh, civil servants in it were kind of executive officers or something. And afterwards, it seemed to run into some sort of problems. It didn't get the buy-in from the executive that maybe the organisers would have wanted. Um, so I think there is this kind of trade-off between what's called in the literature sort of a, a tight coupling uh, with the representative system. The The Irish system is much more tightly coupled. So um, when the assemblies are set up, it's often... Um, a relatively senior civil servant at the moment, it's a, a former sec gentler president who, who's uh, who's running it. Now, they have operational independence. There's no ongoing interference, but it is run by relatively senior civil servants. The last one was run by a very senior Irish civil servant, Catherine Day, who'd worked in uh, the European Commission, and I think that allows the policymakers and the politicians to build levels of trust and makes the kind of makes it more likely that um, you'll have a success, successful outcome. Now, of course, there's huge dangers in that, you know, because in an ideal world one would have a completely independent citizen assembly, uh, but we live in a real world, okay. so. Um, you know, obviously, you have to have a lot of safeguards in there and independent evaluation and different ways of doing it and to try to ensure that. And it obviously depends on the democracy. Like lots of people have said to me, well, you know, would you trust that in Hungary? And You know, the answer is probably not. But, you know, we're talking about um, the, the UK situation here. And I think there's ways of, uh, of thinking about it. Um, So just to wrap up, I think it's really important that these citizens' assemblies are are there, that they're sufficiently independent, that they're not overly instrumentalised by by politicians, but still they should be seen as a cooperative endeavour between government, um, parliament, civil society and citizens. You need to think about those links and about strengthening those links and think about the outputs and think about... Um, how best to ensure that if you do get citizens to give up their valuable time for something like this, that it really results in, um, in something quite powerful and something that was very much worth their while doing. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you, Jane. Um, that was a really useful um, analysis of, of how uh, citizens' assemblies can be integrated into representative institutions, something I think uh, we'll pick up as a, as a theme later in, in the questions. Um, But next, I'm going to pass over to Sarah, um, who's going to talk to us about um, other things, uh, deliberative tools that aren't citizens' assemblies. Absolutely. Thank you. And hello, everybody. Um, So, uh, yeah,
2: I was told to bring along a big idea for bridging the gap between the citizen and the state. So I feel an absolute fraud because my big idea is the deliberative principle, which, of course, isn't my idea at all. And Jane (laughs) has just talked about it in the context of citizens' assemblies um, very, very powerfully. And I think that's where it's probably cut through the best within that sort of formalised structure of the Citizens' Assembly, um, you know, across Europe, across the world, um, and in in the UK as well, of course. But I I want to talk today about about deliberation as a mindset. I think the deliberative principle has some sort of superpowers that we could leverage to to help us bridge this gap between um, between citizens and the state, and that that they benefit both sides, that there's a sort of win-win, if you like, Um, I was really interested to hear Jane talking about the the politicians coming to the Assembly and saying uh, people, you know, they really can engage with these complex issues and they're not just giving random thoughts off the top of their heads. Um, I think one of the strengths of deliberation is that it sort of encodes in its process this this privileging of diversity, of diverse narratives, of the idea that we're all experts in our own lives, with the participatory principle, that we, that we have this knowledge that we bring to everything. And it's very interesting the way to describe it, because, you know, if you're on the right of the political spectrum, it probably sits well to think of it as common sense, and learn why, wise lived experience and learnings from the ordinary people. And, and perhaps if you're on the left, you may, you may focus more on, on systems of oppression and marginalised groups who haven't spoken about their... You know that their 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 lives in ways that have been heard. But I think wherever you are, kind of in the world, that that cuts through. That, that we're not just kind of some people who are sort of some of us are idiots and others of us are super knowledgeable. Um, that, that that we're all able to kind of um, to bring this this diversity of thinking and and deliberation. I think works really well in, in a kind of design. Approach, you know, with that kind of double diamond, you know, it, it, it opens up the diversity of perspectives. It gives us that difference of opinion by contrasting, it we lead, we leads to innovative ideas. Um, you know, one of the principles of innovation in, in commercial settings is you, you put different things from different contexts together and you come up with a new idea, you get lateral thinking. And that's just one of the things that can't help but happen if you're sitting with other people and listening to them, um, you know, and, and letting them speak and, uh, and be heard. Um, The other part, I suppose, is that it then closes the diamond again because it allows us to settle on new stories and new narratives of the future. Um, uh, The other thing that deliberation is great at is making us articulate what lies behind and underneath the things we say and the things we think. So your, your person that you tap on the shoulder in the pub and ask what they think mm-hmm. may tell you what they, what they think about the health service or immigration or, or, or the, the rise in living costs or whatever, but why is that important to them and how does it fit with that overarching view of the world that they have will come out through a, 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 a sustained and well-facilitated deliberative process. So I do think it's a, I th- I think it's a kind of secret superpower that's already embedded in our democracy, actually. We have a lot of deliberative processes in a lot of our decision-making institutions, but they're not kind of, it's quite a shy process. It's not, it's not surfaced and it's not valued perhaps as much as it, as it should be. Um, so I just wanted to talk briefly about two spaces where I think deliberation is kind of gradually coming to the fore and being used more often and just encourage everyone to notice it more and to bang the drum for deliberation, because I think it can, it can help. One is the space of, of co-design. Um, lots of uh, interest in co-design at the moment. Um, I think uh, you know people like Policy Lab are constantly sort of demonstrating its benefits and examples. Uh, lots of the time, I think it can be seen as everything that's around, you know, co-design, co-production, co-produc- all sort of lumped in together. But I think I'm talking more about co-design for policy here as a as a particular thing to focus on. Um, people coming together with some sort of design help. To define a problem really clearly and then think about some solutions. So I think it's great to see it as an innovation process rather than a sort of creative kind of consultation. I think sometimes people say let's do co-design when they sort of mean let's try and get people on board with the decision-making process and get them to tell us how we want the service to be and then we'll do it how we want anyway and then they'll go yeah we, we went to that meeting so we agree and, and it's kind of it's not quite quite that at its at its best it's it's much more holistic much more creative uses lots of tools like modeling and and you know collages and creative creative tools which help us surface those kind of underlying Structures of of how we think about things, and again enables us to, to deliberate and bring that, that strength and creativity in diversity. So, Involve worked with Joseph Rowntree Foundation last couple of years ago um, to look at in-work poverty, and it was quite a long co-design process uh, along with people who had lived in in-work poverty, and they came up with lots and lots of solutions which could then be fed to policymakers from a much more kind of robust platform of, uh, you know, they, 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 were quite, um, they were quite broad and on that, on that policy level, but very practical uh, and things that made a lot of difference, like uh, rights to secure work they were asking for and things around contracting and notice periods and things which might seem a bit detail if you're trying to think of the whole picture, but actually when you came down to what made the difference to people's everyday lives, those were the things that, that made the difference. Um, And and things like more external scrutiny on labour market inspection, which I'm not sure is something that would have come out of a a research process or an opinion Mm. poll or something like that. Or even from the designers just working by themselves and not engaging the public. Um, The other brilliant example that's happening at the moment which I won't talk about too much because Miriam's here but um, she can speak to it, but the work that Engage Britain is doing, um, Involve has worked with Engage Britain um, convening a people's panel to talk about what the biggest challenges are facing the health system, the health service. the two biggest themes that have come out, one is around the workforce, recruitment and retention of people in the workforce in health and care, and the other is around the lack of joined up communication from the user point of view of the service. And that, that, I, I do love that one because literally everybody always nods, don't they, because all of us have had those experiences, every single person. Has, has known what it's like to, to, to fall through the cracks of a different bit of the, of the system. And so those big ideas that come absolutely out of the lived experience that, that, that counts um, are then being put forward through a more co-design process with groups of stakeholders giving ideas and then designing policies for change, which are then going to be turned into um, very, very concrete policy solutions. Um, and I'm sure Miriam will take questions on that and describe it much better than I can. Um, but I think that's, that, 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 to me, is, I think, what the heart of what, what co-design can do. And I think when we've seen the benefits of that project, we'll be able to push forward much more and say, really, this should be a part of all our policy-making processes. It's, it's something that is not, it's not difficult, it's not unknown. There's a very well-trodden set of methods and approaches, and it wouldn't be hard to bring it in. And really, can we afford not to? That was my first one. I'll be brief on the second. Um, Again, Jane talked about how the citizens' assemblies have become uh, associated perhaps with national level decision making, but obviously in the UK at the moment there's a massive focus on the local, and the levelling up agenda means that everyone from the very smallest sort of local institutions to the, the bigger local and regional ones have to think about Um, how we are talking to our citizens and and helping them understand what levelling up actually means to them. And there's there's concurrently a big movement for citizen power and the idea that that citizens can be trusted with decision-making, particularly in local areas, uh, and giving them autonomy over the services that they they need to use. And And again, I think deliberative approaches can help make those links between the, the, the untrusted and worried local councils kind of who feel a bit beleaguered and worried about engaging with people, and the people who don't feel listened to, the people who feel that decisions are being made on a national level far from them. There's a lot of polling that says that recently. Um, and I think that the key to that is to work out what people can influence, and there's a lot more than you might think. So there's that great model for change. So I think the Centre for Sustainable Energy did a kind of lovely circular model. The, the Climate Change Committee used it around all the different spheres of influence that local authority has and, and around things like infrastructure and budgeting and all sorts of decision-making that perhaps you wouldn't think of public engagement as being key to, like, you know, the p- purchasing for uh, things that are um, part of the part of the infrastructure in towns and cities that maybe maybe they're seen as kind of quite, quite dry or not very amenable to public public consultation, but actually you could, you could engage much more, and especially in this time of constrained resources, um, you could help people think through the trade-offs, you could help them decide what to do. And the, the, the campaign for the, um, the Community Power Act has some really interesting ideas in it, like saying that We should give everybody the right to come together as small community groups and buy um, land and property and things which are up for sale in local areas and turn them into community spaces if they can make the case for doing that and that's quite an interesting sort of it's it's a policy lever at a different place which would then lead to more deliberative work and expansion and discussion between the different uh, um, people and decision makers in a local area so I think it's yeah, it's deliberation to bridge that gap between old models of decision-making and new ways of, of brokering power um, in local spaces as well. Um, so th- those are my two examples. Um, I'll make a very final point if I have one more minute. Um, during COVID, we saw a lot of things fall through the gaps. We saw a lot of lines of accountability being muddled and people not being sure who was responsible for things, and we also saw a lot of people and institutions stepping up and and filling those gaps, and we saw communities kind of come together and and work together. And that, in a sense, that gave us this sort of little window of opportunity to create a new narrative of relationships between decision-makers and people. And I don't know what you all think, but I I feel that's almost that window slightly being lost again as we move away from the pandemic. Um, And and I think we should really fight to to keep it open, Um, and particularly when it comes to creating a shared narrative about what we can learn from the experiences that we've had and how we want to take them forward. And I don't want to finish without remembering that five years ago today in Grenfell, there was a terrible tragedy. I live in Shepherd's Bush, where I remember that night very well. Um, and that community doesn't feel that they've been engaged and talked to and, and been part of the shaping that narrative of what's happened, how we've learned from it and how we move forward. And again, I think some of the, the principles or, or, or responses that you get as a deliberative practitioner, if we all had those a little more in our public life, that would help us to avoid these kind of
0: travesties, I suppose.
2: So thank you. I'll leave it there.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you, Sarah. Um, some really useful examples there. And- great to, to bring it back to uh, what's, what's important and what matters there. Um, great. Um, over to you, Ollie. Jess.
3: <laughs> um, I'm gonna take a slightly unusual approach to my pitch and first define digital democracy and then pick that apart a little bit. So um, at Nesta, we've been working in the field of digital democracy for over the last decade, and we've uh, defined it generally as the practice of democracy using digital tools. Which, of course, was particularly convenient a few years ago when the House of Commons um, you know there was a clear absence of technology and uh, in-person deliberation was completely without it and of course, since the pandemic, um, we've seen monitors strapped to the walls of the House of Commons in-person deliberation has moved online and although that's starting to change and come back to face to face that we um, you know that we're, we're we've seen a a kind of merging of those two worlds. And in that sense, it's a little difficult to separate the digital from the democracy now. So we can't really focus on the stuff that happens online without considering the rest of it. Um, And I think the second challenge with digital democracy is the word digital. And to borrow uh, Bran Ferren's quote, technology is stuff that doesn't work yet. (laughs) Um, And I think we often think that with digital democracies that we're talking about Kind of bleeding edge of new forms of participation that are a little hard to um, to, to grasp with, um, and you know we're not necessarily talking about things like e-petitions, uh, signing a petition online because it just works; it becomes part of our day-to-day. Maybe we should, but you know I don't think it's necessarily the most interesting thing about how we can reinvigorate democracy, focusing on those more routine sort of um, day-to-day interactions. So what I want to do with my pitch is take that quote and apply it to the field of democracy. So what would democracy look like if it worked, and uh, what are the digital tools and how can technology help to create that, um, that well-functioning democracy? So the first part of the question, I think has been well covered by Jane and Sarah so far. And I think Citizens Assembly co-design, you know, they, deliberation is uh, all serve as that idea of a well-functioning democracy, I guess. The only thing to add is that although citizens' assemblies have a lot of focus at the moment, and, and for a good reason, that you know I, I believe they should be part of a system of new interactions of uh, participation and deliberation in, in daily life. So there should be a, a, a web of uh, opportunities for people to engage with um, with with government. And besides that, I don't really think it's up to us in this room to define what a well-functioning democracy is, but it should be, of course, led by the people. Um, so taking that kind of idea of future participatory systems, um, how can technology drive these mechanisms? And I'm gonna cheat a little bit and skip the elephant in the room, which is of course digital exclusion, because I think you know, it's another topic uh, and it's a big one, but uh, it's also given the levels in inequality of access to technology and, and uh, you know, data that we can't really do any kind of, participation solely online at the moment, because it, you don't have that kind of equal access. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna give three ideas for, for digital democracy and how technology can drive these um, this new system. They're gonna be a little bit more speculative, so um, stay with me on this. <laughs> um, but the first is to reimagine our concept of representation. So I think people look at social media today and they probably think, oh dear, this is What it's like if we give everyone an equal voice bring millions of people in one room and have a conversation at the same time um you know it's overwhelming it's nonsensical and someone's probably going to get hurt um but we have to remember the rules of the game in social media or as audrey tang refers to them these unsocial networks and how could we reimagine digital tools for uh for truly social networks so tools like uh polis where people are competing for consensus instead of the most inflammatory remarks. Uh, A really good example of how you can create these new systems of collaboration and collective intelligence. Um, And Colin McGill, who's the founder of POLIS, has these really uh, interesting ideas of uh, representation, moving to that one to 90,000 that we have in parliament today. Um, or even, you know, with deliberation and sortition, where we have, you know, these other forms of representation, but getting closer to that one-to-one and finding a coherence to this mass uh, deliberation, mass participation, and and having these tools that can bring coherence. The second is improving legibility and understanding. So I think many of the topics. Uh, that uh, discussed in policy are are quite inaccessible to many citizens. And technology is really an amazing platform to change that. So, uh, you know, it provides flexibility to kind of deepen our understanding. I'm gonna talk just as I could take various different examples, but augmented reality is an interesting idea with that. If you're thinking about urban planning and architecture, taking concepts and, Uh, language and drawings that are completely inaccessible to anyone without a uh, who's been trained in that and using tools that mean that anyone with a device can look at a built the built environment around them their environment and give meaningful input of what that would be like to experience but not just a deeper understanding of the impacts but also leveling the playing field of contributions and how they might be able to um, influence those designs. And the third and final area is uh, the new democratic, democratic spaces that can be created in the digital world. And I think this is a particularly interesting and evolving field. So, open source, source tools, civic hacker communities, um, these offer a unique platform for people to come together to exist in this third space outside of public and private influence and actually have this new network of people. Um, you know, designing designing tools and and uh, new government services. So Taiwan uh, Taiwan's Gov Zero is a really great example of this. That was established just before the 2014 Sunflower Movement, um, and they you know led the kind of civic activism around that and the Occupy um, movement. And they now exist as this uh, unit that's outside of government. There's a digital minister that's without portfolio in in Taiwan government, Audrey Tang, that is a core connection between the two, but actually these this independent group of uh, citizens, anyone can uh, access, of course, with the right skills, um, but I'm jumping over that. Um, anyone can take part and, and be these custodians of open government principles. And I think that's a really unique and exciting opportunity as you know, digital starts to expand and skills increase in, Younger generations, that you know, we can really create this third space of collaboration um, that doesn't exist anywhere else.
0: Great, thanks, Ollie. A really uh, clear pitch and lots of interesting stuff to to get into there. Um, before I hand over to Miriam, just to remind everyone, we we'll will be moving to questions afterwards. So uh, those in the room, start thinking. <laughs> those online, do send them in. Um, but that's our three pitches. Um, now I'll hand over to Miriam, who will offer some thoughts uh,
4: on some of the opportunities and challenges of these various ideas. Thank you. So yeah, Jess asked me to say just a few words about um, opportunities and challenges, but based on my experience of being in government and trying to get a program off the ground, which is about trialing citizens assemblies at local authority level, which at the time when I was there and, and joined the Office for Civil Society as head of community action, um, in 2017, it hadn't been done before. This was still in the UK, a very, very new idea, despite the fact it was kind of gaining traction and kind of had a, a long history in the rest of Europe and the world. So, the question for ministers when I came in and was trying to say, look, you've got the Brexit challenge, right? You keep saying that it's about giving people back control. Here's a tool, here's a way of actually doing it. How about we actually try this and you can kind of basically put your money where your mouth is and we can do it. We can do it in practice in a meaningful and concrete way. It was not that easy. I think that's that It's kind of fair to say. I used various arguments with um, the Secretary of State at the time, Matt Hancock at times so that was fun, and ministers about how you get increased tax take in switzerland because of their history of direct democracy and you know this is a good reason for kind of opening up decisions to people that there's evidence of greater acceptance of budget cuts when you involve citizens in those decisions there's evidence that when you involve people in decision making if you bring them into these decisions that the that state makes that you can improve the relationship between citizens and state but it, all of these arguments it was a really uphill battle not going to lie It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, actually, in my career, to get that project, which at the time was the Innovation Democracy Project, to get it over the line. And I think the main reason it was so difficult to actually persuade ministers and the Secretary of State that this was a worthwhile and useful and positive thing to do that they could lead on was because in order to take that jump, to make that leap, to take the risk of opening up, decision-making to citizens. You have to admit that the current system where people go to the ballot box every four or five years is good enough. But actually, exactly as just told at the beginning with all those statistics, actually, you've got to admit, people do feel incredibly disenfranchised and disempowered and like they have no control over anything the state does and nothing that they do seems to make any difference. And for any party which is governing, that's a really, really hard thing for them to admit. But having said all that, we got there, and we ran the Innovation and Democracy Programme. And it trial citizens' assemblies at that time, kind of the first that were going on in the UK, we trialled it at local authority level. And I just want to kind of do honour to Jane here, but kind of one of the reasons that we could get it over the line is that we could say, look, If they could do it in Ireland, if they could open up the decision about abortion laws in staunchly Catholic Ireland and make it a beautiful and positive and exciting process that the whole country got behind, think we can open up to the citizens of Dudley town centre regeneration. (laughs) Not so scary. So we did get it over the line. Did run the project. It went really well. We worked with Involve and the Democratic Society, and it was great. We've got fantastic evidence to show the impact it had on the local authorities that took part and how positive it was for them, what a difference it made, and also to the people that took part and the impact of actually having power and feeling like, for the first time, I have been listened to. For the first time, I am in a room where I've got some power and I've got something to say, and I'm talking to all these people who I would never usually have any connection with, and together, we have reached a conclusion that otherwise the local authority wouldn't have reached. And that was incredibly exciting. What was also really positive about it was kind of following on from the programme, was being approached by civil servants across government, from Bays to MHCLG to DEFRA, who were coming and going, oh, you've done it. Oh, you've... oh, it wasn't so scary. It worked. How can we build on this? How can we take the lessons from this into the citizen engagement work that we're doing around the policymaking that they're doing? But having said that, I do think we've got an incredibly long way to go in terms of government policy making across the board. In general, the way Westminster works, as I'm sure a lot of people in the room know, involving people impacted by the policy that is being formulated is very, very rarely done in reference to the people who are at the coalface, who are like facing these issues day in, day out, who know what the problems are and who know what the solutions are. It is done generally, in a bubble in Westminster, or Cardiff, or Holyrood, which doesn't really open up that process to the citizens most impacted. So I won't talk about it too much. Sarah's done a fantastic job of talking about what we do at Engage Britain. But at Engage Britain, what what we're trying to kind of show is that it is possible to do policymaking in a different way, that it is possible to open up the policymaking process and build policy packages from the grassroots up that really put people at the heart of understanding what the challenges are and building out the solutions to those challenges. So having, having kind of heard from James and Sarah and Ollie about the democratic innovations that are out there, I am optimistic, actually. I think naturally I am an optimistic person. And I think there's a lot that we can do to build on what the OECD calls the deliberative wave, which has taken in hundreds and hundreds of examples now of deliberation and citizens' assemblies and processes of democratic innovation across the world, and the UK could be part of that kind of wave and that process. I can envisage a world where you've got national government and local government and businesses and public institutions institutionalising kind of that opening up to citizen engagement in their decision-making. But to end, I suppose I want to come back to something that that Jane said, kind of right at the beginning, which is that citizens' assemblies, deliberation, digital democracy, they're just tools. And as tools, they're only as powerful as the body that wields it. Their power comes from the contract between citizens and state that says, if citizens are going to give up their time and their thought and their energy into working together to come up with new ideas and to come up with solutions to these huge, often intractable problems, that the state will listen and will act on what citizens have like collectively come up with. If nothing happens, though, or changes as the result of any of these processes, then it's just an expensive talking shop, a really expensive, really time-consuming talking shop. I think... We can probably all think about the times when we've been asked to fill in a consultation and kind of take part and have your say by insert name here of your local authority and you've just thought really what's the point, why am I going to bother, I know they've already made up their mind, they're not really listening to anything I've got to say, I'm just not going to bother. So for me, if you're not going to do this wholeheartedly, if you're not going to act on what citizens say out of all of these processes, it's more damaging to trust than if you never asked the question in the first place. It's only when the government or whatever the commissioning body is kind of demonstrates that reciprocal trust with their citizens, acts on the outputs of all these incredible innovations, all these incredible tools that we've now got at our disposal that we can actually see that we can make a difference. But when they're done right, when deliberation is put at the heart of decision-making, when we can learn from what Ireland has done. Really, they can devolve real power to citizens. They can increase awareness of the complexities of political decision-making. It is not (coughs) binary, and it is not simple. What governments and politicians have to do all the time and bring citizens into that space and letting them see how difficult it is and work through the trade-offs is only positive. And I really think they can reinvigorate our democracy. Thank you.
0: Great. Thanks, Miriam, for sharing your frustrations and your optimism with us. Um, that was uh, really, really great. Um, okay, I'm going to turn quickly to some audience um, questions. So I'm going to start with a few online and then, and then we'll come into the room. I mean, building on uh, that final point um, that, that you made, Miriam, about making sure things are acted on, we've had a question here um, about the outcomes of citizens' assemblies. Um, and whether they are legally binding, whether decision-makers get the final say. Um, So I was wondering if Jane, if you could just talk us through how that worked in the Irish case and whether you have any um, thoughts on the right balance of of decision-making power so that citizens feel that their uh, deliberations and their conclusions are acted on, but also so policymakers are perhaps comfortable enough um, that they kind of have some sort of control over the process.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So there are definitely people out there and there's definitely theorists who would say that, um, you know, if a citizen assembly comes up with something, then it ought to be implemented. Um, And I think that was actually one of the problems in France with Macron's citizen assembly on the climate, where he said, He was going to actually act on things and then, of course, didn't. And, you know, which which was uh, damaging at the at the time to the to the process and to the, the climate ambitions and so on. So I think as Miriam said there, what's really important is that they are taken seriously and that the citizens can see that they were taken seriously. And if they don't go forward, that there's reasons given for it and that they're communicated with afterwards or that some of them are taken forward and that there's a specific commitment about, you know, we will get back within this time. This is the process that we're going to do. In Ireland, more often now with with some of the bigger ones, the parliament actually makes um, a commitment to set up a special parliamentary committee. So, for example, we had a, a citizen assembly on gender equality last year, and now there's a new uh, cross uh, parliament uh, committee that's been set up, which is just there to consider the report of the gender assembly and then to make its uh, recommendations. So the, the chair of that committee, that MP came back and, and spoke to the citizens and told them about what that committee is doing. The same thing happened after abortion and and, uh, and climate change. So then the, the Parliamentary Committee might decide to do something a bit less, it might decide to do something a bit more, it might decide to take on 50% of the recommendations, whatever it is. But at least the citizens can see that there is actually a process that's been taken seriously, that somebody's actually looking at what they did. And it isn't just a, a tick box exercise and some you know report that's gathering the proverbial uh, dust on a, on a bookshelf. Great,
0: thank you. That's really helpful. And I mean... On a similar theme we talked about um, earlier, some of the citizens' assemblies that have been initiated by Parliament. Obviously, in the UK, we haven't had uh, a UK-wide citizens' assembly initiated by the UK government, but we have had it at various local levels and also parliamentary committees. Um, Sarah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on whether you think citizens' assemblies could be used by Parliament to help the government, uh, to help hold the government to account, or whether there is a risk that, without government backing, you might end up in this situation where uh, proposals don't end up being implemented.
2: Um yeah, that, that's a challenge. Uh, so the, the climate assembly UK was, was commissioned by six select committees, um, and then there was they, they then made a report based on the recommendations of the of the assembly. Then the government didn't really respond very effectively to that. But I still think that the, uh, it, it was a useful tool to hold government to account because you know, they're, they're, you know we did a year after um, event at the, at, the, at the House of Parliament, you know David Attenborough. Came up and told everybody off. I think someone <laughs> said recently about the jubilee: it's not a British event if David Attenborough isn't telling everybody off. <laughs> you know, which is quite right too. Um, and uh, and the. Um, and I think that, the, in a way, the fact that there wasn't that response has been quite, quite telling. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helped move forward other places in the political space. So if you look at what's happening in Scotland, so the Scottish Climate Assembly, we have a PhD student working with us at the moment, going back to our clients in Scotland and saying, you know, what are you doing with the recommendations? Like, Have you got a response? And they're just saying, well, we don't really have a response because we're just doing them. We're just, we're just doing that already. And, and so when you have, when you have something that is commissioned by government and you've got those examples of where there are similar recommendations that aren't taken forward. I think that then gives you more leverage to say, wouldn't it be better if we did, and look, look, at, look at what's happened where it hasn't, hasn't gone forward. So I think, the, I think Citizens Assembly UK, Climate Assembly UK, was a success in that it gave the select committees a lot of meat to work with. Um, But it's also, I think, been a bit of a cautionary tale for for some in government about what happens. Um, And and I think the the other part of the story, I suppose, is that if you do take things forward, as the OECD's work says that I think they they look at lots of processes, they think something like 75% of recommendations are actually taken forward from these processes. It's It's quite a high number. Um, but, in a way, there's nothing to see if 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 people do it and they and the process happens and then that carries on into the policy development process. It's almost like there's no headline it's it's just it just goes on. and so so, it's sometimes hard to show that it's made a difference because the difference it's made is the smooth running of politics and <laughs> and, and there's there's no story there. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, thank you. I should say that was a question from anonymous, so thank you, anonymous. Um, I'm going to take some questions from the audience now. Um, I'll take a group of threes if we've got them. So if you could pop your hand up, and I'm going to make Lucy, poor Lucy, run around. Um, okay, uh, we're gentlemen over there, we were quickest there. Um, great. And then we'll go, Lucy. If, if we go, um, actually we'll go to, to this gentleman here, and then to the front. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Hi. Um, my question is on going even further and institutionalizing um, deliberation. Do you think that's a model that might work in the UK as how it's been done, for example, in Paris or in different local governments in Belgium? Hi. Thank you. Um, The the panel alluded to the weakness of our current democratic system, and I'm thinking about um, our electoral system in particular. How much do you think these systems... Um, can mitigate those challenges and how much is it sort of an insurmountable obstacle that has to be tackled first?
5: And I should probably first declare who I am. I'm the chair of the Electoral Commission. So, first of all, I'm very much bought into the let's reinvigorate democracy agenda, so it's great to be here and part of this conversation. And uh, as we've been talking, I think work we're doing to modernise voting could really benefit from a deliberative approach to it. So there's a kind of crossover there about how we kind of reinvigorate some of the processes of representative democracy. But my question for the panel is, could we be doing more with schools to get children in the habit of being more demanding in exercising their voice when they become uh, able to vote, but also able, hopefully, to deliberate and engage with what's going on in the wider society? Thank you.
0: Great, thank you. Um, I'll let Miriam have first pick um, of... Those questions. (laughs) They're all
4: really exciting. Um, Do I think the UK can institutionalise deliberative democracy? Um, I think we're going to struggle at national government level. I don't think the will is there. Not yet. But I think at local authority level, I think there's a lot of interest and a lot of excitement. In fact, it has, correct me if I'm wrong, been institutionalised in Newham in London. They've set up a standing citizens' assembly with rotating members that determine the um, agenda that should be discussed, and then they deliberate on those particular agendas, and those are taken forward by new and council. What they have is a is a mayor who is absolutely one hundred percent behind citizen assemblies and that um, kind of model of citizen engagement so I think there's i think the way this gains traction is showing by doing look let 's just do it. it turns out it 's not that scary, it is entirely possible and it's got all these positive effects and I think what I'd hope for is that that would have a snowball effect as it becomes almost impossible to conceive of making local authority decisions and then ultimately national national level government decisions without like instituting some sort of kind of deliberative process. It should just be the way things are done. Do I think we'll get there soon? Probably not. Do I think we'll get there eventually? I really hope so. Really quickly can I just touch on kind of your question about could we do more with schools? definitely yes <laughs> i think if we can i think we have to start though with political literacy that i think the political literacy in this country is incredibly poor it's not taught it's not part of the curriculum i think if we can like learn with children kind of that there are avenues through which you can have your say make a stand you can take your you can take your stand kind of as a political representative but you can also Talk to your local councillor like this. You can use these channels like that. Just even just what exists at the moment, there's a whole load of work we can do to kind of make that part of the general discourse. And, and for me, it's until the point where, like, you are quite likely—it's quite possible that you'll get a letter saying, you know, you've been selected for jury service, you know. So it becomes so part of the national psyche that you might get selected to be on a citizen assembly to do a thing, that if we can institute that with our children, so they are part of decision-making in their school environment, school councils, that they can sort of learn, again, learn by doing that this stuff is possible and understand the local and national political processes that they can play a role in. I think that can only improve and kind of help, again, to institutionalize because it becomes normalized.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Ollie. Over to you. Do you have any thoughts, particularly, I suppose, on, um, well, either the electoral system or methods of voting? Are there opportunities to modernise those as well?
3: Um, definitely. I mean, we're working in three pilots across the Nordics at the moment with uh, participatory budgeting and citizens <coughs> assemblies and looking at how open source technologies can be used in those. And, um, you know, it's, it's really changing how people are interacting with it. Um, and i think it is bringing that uh kind of always on democracy into reality so not that people have to participate 24 hours a day and be voting on policy and get completely exhausted of it but that they can participate when and uh when and how they want to i think um on the kind of institutionalizing side because that's a big part of our study as well that um we've we've seen kind of various opportunities of how to kind of get into the narrative in, in institutions. I think Jane touched on some of them of like political deadlock, um, when a policy area is considered unpopular um, and when the political party doesn't have a strong stance on it. So some of these emerging areas that can be really useful to uh, to to uh, initiate a participatory or deliberative process, but then scale that. So, you know, once people take parts, they often do become, um, converted you know it's quite a it's a powerful process and that cultural transformation both within institutions so exposing more people in government to these opportunities and the the people that take part as well i thought with the climate assembly that was particularly powerful not necessarily the impacts of the outputs but the impacts on the individual individuals that took part that you know might not have been engaged in politics at all but then become part of their local council then become activists in climate change and i think when we think about the scale of challenges we face that's a really powerful motivation to just do it let's get going
0: (laughs) great thank you I think we'll probably squeeze in a couple more in the room and particularly from any women (laughs) yes over here Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Georgie Dennis. Uh, I'm CEO at
2: SciApp. We're a new um, tech startup designing a deliberative democracy platform. Um, I was reading about Edmonton, Canada, that had a deliberative democracy effort on modernizing voting, um, and the recommendations from the citizens wasn't taken up by the political leadership because they weren't Bought in to the process. So the process was led by policymakers, um, but the political leadership kind of weren't part of that other than to receive the report with the recommendations. So my question is, what's the best way to engage um, leaders, especially representative elected
0: leaders um, in deliberative democracy? Great, thank you. And just the gentleman at the back has a final question.
5: Hi, my name is Mike. Um, I've given um, written evidence to three select committees, um, nine sets of evidence, and it's been a bit more successful than I'd imagined. It gets read, it gets published, occasionally it gets questioned. Um, I wouldn't recommend uh, students learn to write WPQs, written parliamentary questions, would be a very bad experience, I think. But the uh, writing a, a submission for a select committee would be Useful, I think. I'd be particularly interested in how that might be finessed. Um, my question, no. that would be: um, I am wondering, uh, at what point could we suggest that if you're asking for this participation and it sort of works, um, if you put enough effort into it, at what point would the ministers being questioned be asked to give evidence under oath um, in order to um, be more accountable to? Um, if you've gone to that and the Sec committee have filtered it, uh, and then you, you're faced with somebody lying their pants off, basically. But uh, how do you stop that? Is is there anything in the platforms where, if the evidence is seen as robust, it's published, it's, you know, it, it's durable, um, is there any way we can um, perhaps honour that by getting ministers or suppliers to give evidence under oath?
0: Well, thank you. So a couple of questions there, one on kind of getting buy-in from political leaders um, and another there about uh, how to ensure people, people follow through and is held accountable, I suppose, for anything that, that, they, that they set up. Um, who wants to go take any volunteers to take those? Yes, Sarah. And that
2: second one is is very interesting and is at the heart of much of the how you coll- how you collect evidence to to do this, and I'll, I'll come to it in a second. But um, the the first point about how do you convince political leadership? I think uh, those of us in the Democracy sector, if it is a sector, um, or in the deliberative democracy part of the democracy sector, um, really need to think much more carefully about advocacy and communications because the story you tell—you're absolutely right—the story that you go and tell the minister is very different to the story that you tell the policymaker about the benefits and the and the trade-offs and the challenges for them. And, and I think, I mean, the people in the world that seem to be having most success with it are saying, you know, give us your most difficult problems, give us the things that you're worried that you're going to lose the election on, um, te- you know, give give us the the, the challenge that no nobody in your party really gets, but you want to move on. Or the the moral issue that you think there's fragmentation on, you know, and and using the Ireland example. Um, And that that does tend to, to cut through and work if you get the right You have to get the right moment and the right people and the stars have to be aligned in different ways. And and a lot of it is actually about how the organisations making the case are funded, because I know we are involved; are funded on a consultancy basis. We don't have one funder who gives us lots of money so we can sit there all year and wait for the right moment to talk to that one minister to do the big, you know, £10 million Citizens' Assembly that includes everyone in the world. We we have to kind of keep going with the, the processes which are maybe not as perfect as we might like, but which we try and leverage to demonstrate as best as best we can you know the, the, the potential and, and a lot of those are in, in local spaces, I think local government has that, there's that same story because local politicians especially now when there's that there's tension between you know if you're a combined authority and you've got a mayor in the frame and you've got national government breathing down your neck and you've got all these different uh, different challenges and, and changes that your, your citizenship want to see um, I think there's, there's some really strong kind of political uh, messaging that can, can, can be given there. But I think it has to be sort of scaffolded with the right story for, um, for policy makers, for, 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 for the civil service, for the policy teams as well, because it can't just be seen as some sort of media exercise. And that's why I think it, then it, it, it connects to everything people have been saying, the, 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 literacy of, the political literacy of the people, the kind of media environment, and what, what stories will be told about the, about the, the issue and the event. Um, the the trust about whether people are going to be telling the truth when they're there and the kind of evidence that's presented. And and I think that's why you need these incredibly robust processes as well. And that's probably the less sexy bit, going, you know, here's the evidence, here's how you do the process, and here's how we know it's been done properly. But that needs to be there in the background, because otherwise you might think that the evidence is completely biased or that the advisory group hasn't created the right um, content for sharing, so people have been led down a rabbit hole. And then you think... Well, perhaps the whole thing has been politically co-opted and perhaps it's not really a, a, a neutral process. So so I think it's... Uh, I'm kind of answering all the questions all at once, but but I think it's all part of this, this ecosystem that we need to kind of get together on and have more clear, shared lines. And I'm really enjoying working with colleagues at the Electoral Commission and elsewhere in, in the democracy sector on the Democracy Network, which is another programme that Involver are hosting at the moment to try and get... Get those shared stories a little bit more cohesive for the next stage of this.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm really sorry, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, But thank you so much to all the panellists. It's been really fascinating to hear lots of ideas and um, lots of consensus there, I think, about um, the challenges that advocates of of democratic information um, and democratic innovations face in um, convincing policymakers um, that these are useful tools to ensure that um, the outcomes get get followed through as well. So uh, really, um, lots for us to to think about in, in this review of the constitution that we're doing about how to make the case to policymakers and uh, unlock the potential of a lot of the really interesting and useful ideas that you've all brought to the table. So. Um, I'd like to thank my panel. Um, Thanks to to Ollie, to Sarah, to Miriam and to Jane. Um, As I mentioned, this is part of the IFG um, and Bennett Institute Review of the Constitution. You can find our first paper setting out um, our framework for reviewing the Constitution on both of our websites. Um, And we'll be publishing um, papers throughout the year um, and also holding a series of events, so please do look out um, for all of those. Um, But lastly, um, thank you everyone for coming and thanks for everyone for joining online and and do keep an eye out for future IFG events. Thanks very much.